Welcome to the MBA series. This is a special multi-part series within Next Economy Now. We are going to review the arc of the learning journey that is presented in the Next Economy MBA online course. We are open sourcing the content from our course and hope to share it in this shorter, bite-sized format. We are launching this series because we were asked to do it by listeners like you. We're also doing it because we are writing a book entitled The Next Economy MBA, Redesigning Business for the Benefit of All Life, which will be published on May 23rd, 2023 by Barrett Kohler Publishers. This is a sizable series. There will eventually be 18 podcast episodes of course content and nine interviews with MBA alumni. We will be rotating every other week with our normal Next Economy Now interview format. We hope you enjoy it. Please reach out to us via our website, lifteconomy.com, with any comments, feedback, or requests. And now, on with the show. Hello, my name is Kevin Bayuk, and I'm a worker owner at Lift Economy. And today I'm joined with by Aaron. Hi, I'm Aaron Axelrod, also a worker owner at Lift Economy. So happy to be here. And today we're going to start at the top with the first session that is in our Next Economy MBA training and essentially the first chapter of the Next Economy MBA book of an introduction to the Next Economy. I'm excited to dialogue about this with you, Aaron. And I think maybe start with defining some terms that come up a lot as we talk about uh, and explore and learn about generating and growing and supporting the development of the next economy. What do we mean by economy? Such a great question, Kevin. And it's one that our MBA students come in and most are attracted to the course because we actually take a broader frame on what is economy than you might find um, in the business as usual culture that we all are a part of. So Sometimes you might hear economy is around dividends, economy is around investment and venture capital. And we're actually holding it in the strategies that humans are using to meet our needs, right? The transactions that we um, have evolved to create to support our housing needs, our shelter, our food, our watershed, our fiber, our clothing, our primary form of shelter. Economy to us encompasses much more than interest-bearing debt and dividends and and anything you would add to that, Kevin? Yeah, I think that's it can be really confusing when thinking about the economy if we're stuck in the constraints of how the business as usual economy shows up both in words and concepts. So I'll be talking to somebody about the next economy and they'll be saying, okay, well, we're talking about businesses and enterprise and capital and the financialization of the world and supply and demand and balance sheets and profit and loss statements and all these artifacts of what we oftentimes popularly associate with economy and I think those constraints can be challenges to conceptualizing an economy that actually works for the benefit of all life. And this idea of stepping back, like way back, if economy, like you said, is 
the collective set of strategies we use to meet our needs, all of a sudden me growing an herb garden at home for tea actually is an economic activity. And I think that sometimes stretches the imagination for some people who are just starting on this learning journey together. Does that resonate with you, Erin? I'm sitting here drinking my lemon balm tea as we speak, (laughs) (laughs) investing in my healthcare system. (laughs) So absolutely. And I think we could even look at the growth of the business as usual economy, which is what we contrast with the next economy, which we'll define in a moment together. But when we look at the business as usual economy, there's the growth of it, as far as we can tell, has a lot to do with essentially the taking of the informal economy is what some people refer to it as. So when I do grow herbs at home and make tea, but I don't go to a grocery store or a market or even a farmer and purchase tea, that purchase transacted by currency, you know, contributes to GDP. That's part of the economy. But for some reason, we've forgotten that if I grow the herbs myself and make myself tea, that that also could be considered part of the economy. It's just informal or gift, or there's different words or labels about primary production or even barter and exchange between neighbors and friends and family that we could say are definitely part of the economy. But what we've seen just in the business as usual economy, that it's taking those transactions and that kind of informal economy and financializing it or commoditizing it. Is that resonating with you, Aaron? How does that land for you? Yeah, absolutely. And what's so exciting is when we see our MBA participants' faces light up when we actually cover things like alternatives to that financialization, things like barter systems, time banking, community cooperatives of shared ownership over the means of production. So many of these strategies that innovators have courageously identified other ways of meeting our needs as opposed to simple financial transactions. And it's like a whole new world opens up for people. And it really is quite life-changing when we think about the economy in that way. And so with this life changing, I want to have compassion, of course, for anybody who has essentially been born into the constraints of the business as usual economy, because the compassion I want to extend is uh, if all of the personal security strategies that you know revolve around the idea of I need to you know, get a job or go to a, get higher education so I can get a high paying job. And so I can acquire wealth or a high paying salary. And that way I can, you know, pay rent and maybe then I can secure private property and own assets and, and, you know, save for uh, some retirement when someday I will be, uh, you know, not able-bodied enough to also continue to work. And now I have personal, so my entire personal security is kind of wrapped up in these strategies that are presented by the business as usual economy. And if I didn't know that other alternatives were available and they might not be available to my consciousness, it might be culturally invisible or from privilege and positionality, they could be extraordinarily stressful to endeavor to even think about or try something different. I want to make sure that we're holding space for anybody who's listening to this and they're like, that's cute that you're talking about growing tea and that there's an informal economy in other ways. But right now I just need to, you know, pay the rent 
So I think we can engage in this conversation with compassion. Does that bring up anything additional for you, Erin? Absolutely. It also brings up white supremacy and the nature of the racialized inequities that are so entrenched in the business as usual economy and how privilege and positionality and the fact that our economy, the business as usual economy is built on the backs of stolen land and stolen labor. And so a lot of the choicefulness that entrepreneurs and individuals are able to step into is defined often by that those legacies of harm and oppression. And so I think that's a, also a really important point to make in this spirit of compassion that some of us are coming into this with inherited wealth and some are coming in with inherited lack of access to wealth or accumulated or land or ownership of land or access to land. And that really can determine, play a huge role in what types of choices are available to us. And so, yeah, I just wanted to bring that in as well. Thank you, Erin. And so if we do take this big step back and endeavor to just hold space for a moment in a compassionate way, step back and say, okay, if the economy is this collective strategies we use to meet our needs, then that can be quite liberating. Like you mentioned, all the alternative mechanisms, barter, trade, exchange, primary production, growing our own, all the different ways we can meet our needs, gift and sharing. In that context, I think let's acknowledge also that there's many people living in the world today who that is their default, is that they don't have access to the business as usual, financialized, affluent world economy. The way in which they meet their needs is not mediated by you know, centralized currency, debt-based, interest-bearing debt currencies, the way they meet their needs is through those types of activities. And we'll talk a lot more about that in this series, and you'll find that in the training and the book, all those strategies. But those informal economy strategies and emergent and generative set of approaches and structures and even cultural change norms, if we bundle all those together and imagine an economy that was working for the benefit of all life with nobody left out. So in a way where humans were meeting our needs for food, water, shelter, community, loving relationships, all the things that we need, but doing so in a way that actually regenerates and repairs the earth and the place in which we inhabit and the earth around us, the everything about the environment. So biodiversity is increasing and all these things. And we'll talk about this in just a moment. That's what we call the next economy. And I just want to talk about that term for a moment because when we say next, I think some people, you know, there's lots of different rhetoric out there around the new economy or the generative economy, the green economy. I've heard the blue economy, whichever color you want, the teal economy, lots of different ways to describe the aspects that we'll talk about in some of these structures, strategies, and norms of that are intending to articulate that vision for a different type of economy. The reason we choose next is first, new would be a good term maybe, but a lot of the techniques and strategies and approaches that we explore in the next economy MBA are actually really old. So they're not new and they come from, in most part, from indigenous wisdom traditions and the life ways of indigenous peoples today. 
who have lived in place, have stewarded their place, met their needs in ways that actually you know, repair, heal, or sustain the vibrancy and fecundity of life in their bioregion, in the place that they live. And so there's many things that are not at all new. And so it's almost insulting in some ways, subtly insulting. And I, I, I don't want to critique too heavily because there are people who use new economy who are very well intended. And they rely on you know, the solidarity economy, the mutual aid economy, different different other subframings that you know definitely articulate again this part. The reason I think I'm mostly drawn to next as a framing for it is because we're coming into an age with the kind of explosion of technology where we're shaping our environment, shaping our atmosphere in many ways we're actually at a point of existentialism where there are threats that are emergent today that maybe this is since the atomic bomb or the 1940s. Sometime in the 20th century, we passed this threshold where we have the capacity to extinct humanity and not to mention humanity already are extincting many species around the world today than of non-human life. And you could say that if we continue on the trajectory of the business as usual economy, it is not only ecocidal, it is likely to be suicidal. It's extinction event for humanity is the trajectory of the business as usual economy. And so you could kind of say, if there's going to be an economy that meets human needs, that's not suicidal and ecocidal, it's next. In other words, the next economy is, as far as we could say, inevitable. Because if you have any economy that's not one that works for the benefit of all life on the trajectory we're on, we will perish. So that's one of the aspects of the framing of next economy that really resonates with me. And I think with the lift team, Aaron, is there anything I missed there that you want to build on there? I would. Yeah, I wholly agree. And we, I love using next because it does acknowledge that a lot of these things that we are remembering are components that that used to exist that in some parts of the world, like you said, Kevin, still are the predominant way of meeting our needs, but they're categorically invisibilized by mainstream business as usual media and economic systems, and therefore not as, at least in the affluent world circles that a lot of this theorizing happens in, it's just not acknowledged or recognized as economic activity. And I also want to acknowledge, you know, we have such dear partners that use new economy as well to acknowledge the essence or like the newness of the feeling of where we're going in that there's like an approachability and an excitement about the vision of what is possible looks so different from what we have right now that there's like a celebration of something new, something that's different from from where we are now that, like we said early on, many of our students are coming in, like not even dreaming of some of the stuff that we talk about. Let's build on that for a moment. I, I love this, Aaron. This, if there is a vision for an economy that works for the benefit of all life with nobody left out, and if it is difficult to conceive of um, from being burdened by the obvious inadequacies of the business-as-usual economy, maybe we could kind of discuss and explore together what are some of the aspects of that vision 
that can help maybe ground it a little bit or just just even paint the picture. So in our ima- imagination, in our imagination, we could picture what that economy might look like. And we might maybe bring up some case stories in that. Do you want to start, Aaron? Is there something about the vision for an economy that works for the benefit of all life that calls to you that you want to share? Sure, absolutely. For me, what comes up right off the bat is land. And obviously, land access is something so many people are concerned with. And really, the innovations that we get most excited about with regards to new and old ways of reimagining our relationship to land are land recommoning efforts, cooperative stewardship of land and property, um, even disambiguating land and property and having them be distinct notions of moving beyond an ownership paradigm of land, um, stewardship, reparations, land back. There's such an abundance of innovative ways to look at how we truly relate to land and housing. And one particular case story that we talk about often in our MBA course is the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative. That is a organization of Black and Indigenous-led staff collective that is actually a multi-stakeholder cooperative. So the worker owners have an ownership stake in the cooperative, as well as community members, as well as tenant organizers, as well as investor owners. And so collectively, this group is rebuilding the capabilities as a community to own and steward property, particularly in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area bioregion, unceded Ohlone territory. And that model, they've gotten requests from all over Turtle Island to replicate their model and help other communities develop cooperative uh, land and housing stewardship. That's a vision. It's happening right now. <laughs> it's, it's happening right now. And so there's some, when we vision the next economy, sometimes there's things that are actually really close in. They're actually happening. They're emergent uh, around this continent, North America, around the world. And there are aspects of the vision that are a little bit further out that some of the efforts today are prefigurative of. They're anticipatory. They're, they're anticipating a world where the notions of like private property ownership don't apply anymore, that we could adjust our relationship to land and land tenure as something where like a stewardship paradigm, like you're describing, more of a sharing paradigm where if our needs are met and they're met adequately and abundantly, what need do we have for the market exchange of the notion of private property with land? But that could also be extended to other things beyond land, this type of like sharing. And thanks for grounding it in a real life example that's happening today where a stewardship ethic that is enabling permanently affordable land tenure or permanently affordable housing um, in an area that is subject to gentrification as well as displacement, especially of people of color, and enabling them to live in their home with the reliability of being able to connect into the community that they've lived in and to take a stewardship ethic to their place and be part of the ownership of that so that if there is any benefit that accrues from any profit making, it can operate as a 
not-for-profit, not to commoditize or marketize housing. But if there is any benefit, it actually can flow back to making housing cheaper or more affordable over time or taking any of that resource and actually distributing it to the community of owners. And if terms like multi-stakeholder cooperative are confusing, I promise you in this series and of course in the book, we will actually talk about those terms and structures so that we they become a bit more familiar as we go. If I could build a little bit, Aaron, on this uh, you know vision for an economy that works for the benefit of all life, I might you know come back to another example where ownership is different. Another case story that we reference quite a bit in the Next Economy MBA is it's actually it's actually a pretty small farm in the Pacific Northwest of uh, Turtle Island of the so-called United States. It's called Our Table. And Our Table is also a multi-stakeholder cooperative. You might see a theme here in changing the notion of ownership and access. And the organization, again, it exists today. So this is near in, but I think it's prefigurative of something that's pretty far out and maybe in the future in that they, on the one hand, it's just a 65 acre or 60 acre or so farm, but it's a bit different for a number of ways. One, the farm entity itself is owned by, in part, by the workers who work on the farm, which is exceedingly rare in the world today. It's also partially owned by a network of producers in the Willamette Valley area in the region. And it's also partially owned by consumers, people who live near the farm, who eat the food that comes from the farm. And because there's these different owners, the governance and the decision-making about you know, how much should the food cost? How much should the workers be paid? Any questions about what's going on on the farm can actually be is actually decided through a collaborative governance amongst multiple stakeholders rather than just, you know, capital or investors or a single owner or non-owner occupant or non-worker deciding what happens with those types of decisions oriented towards profit-taking. And if you take away this orientation towards profit-making, you could have better practices. So the farm is using either biodynamic and or no-till practices for their vegetables and their uh, berries and their perennials. And so they have this mixed certified organic yield of high quality food. And they've also vertically integrated, which is an interesting idea, but micro vertically integrated. So there's a small kitchen on site as well as a market on site. And, you know, you could say, okay, that's beautiful. You have highly nutritious food accessible to a community who actually participates in the ownership of the farm and the workers are paid better than other workers in the region because they are part owners as well. And you have a network of producers who are mutually in support of this one farm entity. And you could say, okay, that's cute again, but what does that mean for the food system? But I think what's exciting in the vision for an economy that works for the benefit of all life is that's actually a model that if you regionally replicated it and adopt, adapted it to each place and each culture, you could start to re-envision a food system where everybody in every bioregion on earth through better regenerative agriculture practices, better care of their watershed because they're not motivated to generate the most excessive profit-taking through better practices and better ownership structures, everybody could have nutrition, access to nutrition. Any surplus profits could flow out to those who are creating it, the workers and or consumers or mutually supportive producers. And so there's a model here 
that can scale, but not scale by accretion. It doesn't have to be a gigantic food company. It can be a community organization, an entity that can be regionally replicated and adapted everywhere. And so in your mind's eye, if you could imagine not just one hour table, but if you could imagine you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of hour tables around the world within every food shed with a diverse set of regenerative agriculture productions, production systems, you could imagine that everybody could have food, everybody could have high nutritious food. And while producing that food, biodiversity could be enhanced. The quality of water infiltration into the aquifers could be more reliable. So in this climate extremism and weather extreme weather events, you could have a more resilient biosphere in our neighborhoods where people live. And that's something where food is accessible, healthy, prepared, and you know we can reclaim some of our community connection around food. And so that's just an example of one aspect of the vision. Aaron, do you want to share any, any more on, on some of the, there's so many, for what it's worth, there's so many directions we could take the visioning piece. And I think it's just healthy to kind of paint some of the picture in our mind's eye. Is there anything else you want to mention, Aaron? Energy systems are another incredibly rich and exciting place where we're seeing, obviously, such a stark difference between where we are now in terms of the monopolization of utilities that are controlling the energy transmission and how that long line transmission is actually contributing and exacerbating some of the climate disasters that so many communities have been facing in terms of wildfires um, being caused by outdated and under-maintained power transmission infrastructure. And on the other hand, we're seeing like a vision, what could be possible would be communities having deep energy democracy and community control over their energy, whether that be solar photovoltaic or even having community solar cookers where we see companies, there's a really amazing company that works around the globe to have solar bread bakeries. Imagine that, use, you know, cooking just through the power of the sun. And there's so many different ways of meeting our energy needs and communities having agency and power over them. We're seeing in Puerto Rico, this organization called Casa Pueblo that has a vision for Puerto Rico's energy being 50% met by solar energy. And communities are organizing and galvanizing interest and providing technical assistance and people-powered solar cooperative based out of Oakland is collaborating with them. And we're sharing knowledge across bioregions to really take a stand and create that energy democracy. And one of the principles we talk about in the MBA is that we can't just wholly rely on individual enterprises to create that next economy, but really this vision of enterprise-based enterprises that are part of networks of movements that are actually working on systems transformation, whether that be in the form of movement building, policy change, culture transformation, reclaiming media, cooperative ownership of media so that people are are much more exposed to this, this vision of what is possible. And of course, I would be remiss since you mentioned food. I would be remiss if I wasn't talking about our our clothing too, our fiber shed ecosystems and everything you, you described, Kevin, in terms of the food systems and the potential for regeneration can also be achieved with fiber and textiles. And as you know, Kevin, food and fiber, both of those really, we can 
trace some of the most horrific legacies of the U.S. colonial project to commodification and exploitation of labor from staples like rice, food, a food crop, and also fiber crops like cotton and indigo. And so really re-envisioning and reclaiming and and visioning a, a different future of relationship with those crops, food and fiber really is a big part of what I'm dreaming into and, and what so many of our alumni community is dreaming into with the next economy. Thanks, Erin. And I think building on this, uh, you might be listening to this and saying like, well, it seems like, you know, Lyft is focused on just maybe agrarian or primary production or kind of this bioregional scale, but but we live in a context of technology. Where does technology kind of fit? And, you know, what about AI and, you know, the kind of techno-optimism? Well, I guess I would say is, you know, some of the kind of solar punk visioning of integrating the idea of technology and surface to humanity. I think the one thing we're, you know, cognizant of is the the need to transform culture as well. So we don't get in our vision for that, that we hold for the next economy, the same type of cultural norms and patterns around consumption, wanton consumption, especially around energy um, are actually infeasible. They're incompatible with an economy that works for the benefit of all life. So there actually has to be a requisite transformation of culture, a reduction of our baseload use of energy in order to have something that is leverages diversified renewable energy. So instead of keeping things as they are with regards to extraction and wanton consumption and just adding in fusion energy or some type of magical thinking about some additional form of ubiquitous energy, which only solves a part of the ubiquitous or nearly ubiquitous optionality that the fossil energy has provided for the growth of the business as usual economy, there has to be a you know a requisite transformation of culture to less energy use, a more conservative, conservation-oriented culture, reducing our need for energy inputs in kind of uh and then partnering with technology in appropriate ways at appropriate scales so that communities, individuals, families can become more locally self-reliant. And we'll have more to speak about this in future sessions. I don't think this session would be complete in terms of introducing the introduction to the next economy part one, there's more to come, without talking a little bit of starting the critique of the business as usual economy. Aaron, when we say the business as usual economy, that's kind of like what is today, but how do we know the business as usual economy is not working? I mean, related to what you just brought up around this re- necessary or requisite reduction in, in energy use, I just want to say that does not have to come at the cost of, actually, I could see that happening with an increase in quality of life, actually. So some people hold that energy reduction as like a a negative or something that is lacking or a compromise or sacrifice. One of the patterns that we're seeing with, with the current economy is that the psychological and actual health tolls of the business as usual economy are quite considerable in terms of health impacts from 
stationary lives from a food system that's based in high calories, but low, low nutrition. In this country, in the US, so-called US, we're on track to bankrupt the country in a couple decades because of chronic disease, which chronic disease, heart disease, cancers, all of these aspects are quite literally tied to some of the consumptive patterns and the economic patterns that we find all around us. So I would just name that as as a first, you know, the, the psychological and real implications and costs of affluent culture shouldn't be underestimated. I'm sure I missed a bunch of those costs. <laughs> I think any reasonable critique of the existing economy, the strategies that we're using to meet our needs would result in an awareness of, an acknowledgement of the inadequacy. I mean, we have something like 800 million people today and yesterday and tomorrow who are hungry and malnourished. You know, something like 900 million people on the planet who don't have an adequate supply of fresh water just to be able to meet their needs to survive for sanitation and just drinking water. And we have a crisis where we have more shelters in terms of gross like space under roofs than we need. And yet we have, especially in the affluent world, a tragedy of involuntary unhomedness or homelessness. You mentioned the health inequities and the racialized health inequities that exacerbate these chronic health conditions. We have, you know, species extinction and soil loss and climate catastrophe, extreme events and sea level rise that will create tremendous amount of displacement. And then there's root causes of these things, which we'll go into throughout this kind of series around patriarchy and colonialism, racism, our attachments to private property, and, and even the DNA of how the business as usual economy has developed of a centralized currency created as interest bearing debt and how that leads to the exploitation of labor and land and so many other symptomatic problems of the business as usual economy, this maximization of shareholder value through corporatism and the corporate capture of government and the breakdown of governance structures, the breakdown of the information ecology, like you said, the media system is broken, the education system is broken, and so much focus on short-term market rate, fiduciary duty, and all the immune system that the business-as-usual economy has created to prevent change or transformation. So there's a lot that I think is self-evidently broken if you take a sober rational analysis of what's happening in the world today. Um, I know well, many of us might be attached to the business as usual economy and hope that maybe a couple of tweaks here or there could make it work for everybody. But I'm afraid that we're reaching a point where uh, through exponential tech and our impact on the atmosphere and life and this obscenity of exploitation of people that has been happening for generations is reaching its limits, biospheric limits and, and social limits. And so we're in this moment where it's if we don't transition to the next, I fear that we are in a position to perish. So I hope that the rest of this series and, of course, the book and for those of you who have enrolled in or want to participate in the Next Economy MBA training, where we go through and say, okay, with this idea of a vision for an economy that works for all life that Aaron and I briefly touched on, 
and with a deeper critique, which we'll go into in the next session on what is broken about the business as usual economy, we can kind of emerge through, well, maybe there's some principles and guidelines we could use to navigate from here to there, to there being the vision for an economy that works for the benefit of all life. And then the rest of the series, you'll see, you know, just a little foreshadowing here. We get a little bit nuts and bolts. How would we apply those principles? What would it look like? How do we get to this regenerative, circular, socially equitable, reparative economy that we can just start to imagine as possible? And if it all sounds like science fiction, a lot of the effort is happening. Cooperators are standing by. Aaron and I have the privilege of taking every one of our days and working with people who are growing, developing, experimenting, and trying their, giving their life energy to generating this economy that works for the benefit of all life. And it's an enormous privilege. And I wish it for everybody because it makes it so much easier to be energized around being alive today, seeing the action that people are taking. Erin, any last words for today before we wrap this session up? Just to close in a way where I do want to acknowledge the increasing numbers of people that we come into contact with that have realized how much is broken and are really, really deeply seeking alternatives. That has the people that are really, you know, overcoming the numbness that uh, sometimes we have to adopt just to survive in this economy and saying, wait a sec, I don't want to be numb anymore. I want to look wide-eyed at the problems and actively create solutions. The number of people that has that has increased dramatically over the past 10 years. And we just consistently see that in the demand for our MBA and our podcast and so much more. And I want to acknowledge that, you know, there continues to be this mythology that feels so real in so many ways, which is around that humans are inherently destructive, that we are inherently, we cannot meet our food needs without tilling the fields and plowing and destroying soil web and destroying biology. And I want to just uplift so many, so many thinkers and spokesperson. The author Robin Wall Kimmerer has written so eloquently about the indigenous worldviews that provide an alternative to that, that it's not an inherent law of physics that humans are destructive. In fact, we can point to so many indigenous cultures that actually are completely regenerative, that when we take a bite of food, the food and the way we grew or cultivated or sourced that food actually regenerated, increased the biodiversity, increased the water, sh- the water availability for people and um, more than human species. And so just would love to leave that with our listeners that it doesn't have to be an inherent aspect to humanity to be dilatorious to our environment, but that there's another way. And we're, we continue to be deeply inspired by the people we get to work with on a daily basis who are creating that other way. Thank you, Aaron, And thanks to you listeners. More to come in this new series around the Next Economy MBA. Thanks, Kevin. Talk soon. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter 
at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.